Let us pray. We indeed thank you for this beautiful day, O oh God. And we thank you for every good gift that comes to us by your grace. We ask you now to silence in us any voice but your own. And as we hear your word again, transform us. Transform us to follow and to serve and to love for Christ's sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew. Just a few chapters following what we have just acclaimed together, Jesus' triumphal entry, beginning at the 14th verse of the 26th chapter. Let us hear God's word. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the 12 and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, that is, it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Week is upon us. I invite and encourage you to take full advantage of every worship opportunity we offer as we move through this week. As Martha has reminded us, tomorrow evening the Living Waters service will help prepare us with a time of prayer and music and reflection. On Monday, Thursday, we will commemorate Jesus' Last Supper and then move to the narrative of the crucifixion with our Tenebrae service. If you've not ever attended that service, I'd encourage you to consider it. It is moving and poignant with meaningful choral music as well as the sacrament of Holy Communion. Then on Friday morning, join others in the city for an ecumenical Good Friday walk 
focusing on peace and justice. Our own Good Friday service at 1215 is simple and striking, a telling of the Good Friday crucifixion narrative. Then comes Easter morning. Again, we may join others in the wider community at CRCDS at 6.30, and then our worship here in the sanctuary will be at 9 o'clock and 11.15. Please note the time. And we'd encourage you to invite a friend or a neighbor, maybe a church member you haven't seen in a while, join us for a wonderful, wonderful Easter celebration. It's a full week and a significant week. And it begins this morning. And it begins with two questions. Both will seem obvious. Number one, what do we call this morning? And number two, what is reconciliation on a day like this? The simpler question would seem to be, what do we call this morning? In all my memory, and perhaps yours, it's been called Palm Sunday. Thanks, Captain Obvious. <laughs> we wave palms, we parade, we sing uplifting hymns, we mark Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a, it's a festive day, Palm Sunday. If there are other approaches, some traditions, and perhaps some of you called it, or call it yet, Passion Sunday. Passion being the word used to describe this cadence of Jesus' betrayal and trial and crucifixion. Calling today Passion Sunday tips the hand more clearly about what is to come on Thursday and Friday. Now what we call it, for we Presbyterians, doesn't suggest there's a right or wrong answer. None of this is prescribed for us. But I've noticed over the last decade, more and more of my colleagues even calling this day Palm and Passion Sunday. And I understand that, even though I'm not quite there yet. Palm Sunday is fine. But you'll still note what we've done today. We began worship with the narrative of the triumphal entry. We sang a Palm Sunday hymn, a glorious one. We waved palms. But we've just heard a later portion of Matthew's gospel, beginning the betrayal narrative. And just as we've heard wonderful choral music around lifting up gates, soon we'll hear echoes of what is to come musically as well. Palm Sunday, we'll call it with a clear understanding that the triumphal spirit won't last long. So then we move to the second question. What is reconciliation on a day like today? And if ever we've doubted that this theme has run its course, this week's events have underscored its timeliness, whether in Syria or Sweden, or just this morning in Egypt, what is reconciliation? At a joint meeting of the session and deacons in January, we spent some time around tables discussing this question, and one of your elders framed the question with a beautiful clarity. She asked, how do I reconcile my faith and my everyday living? 
And when she said that, the heads around the table nodded in agreement. How do I live out what I believe in a world that does not always embrace what I believe? How do the values and practices I experience at church make a difference in the world? For her, and my hunch is for many of us, this tug of war between faith and culture, between belief and daily behavior seems almost irreconcilable. And if that's the case, then we have choices to make. One choice, of course, doesn't worry about the question at all. Sees no connection whatsoever between this hour on Sunday morning and all the rest of the hours out there. That's one approach. Another approach would so equate faith and culture that there's no difference between the two, a position which almost necessarily removes you from living in the real world. So neither, either total rejection or total affirmation seems sustainable or acceptable and in some ways doesn't really seem very faithful. So for those of us who cannot say that faith means nothing, or faith calls us apart from culture, then we face an inherent messiness that undergirded our good elders' question in January. How? How do we seek reconciliation? Now, if you want to see just how messy that question really is, how conflicting and contradictory, just look at this morning and look at this week. Here's a little scenario. Imagine yourself as a sports fan attending a big game. Your team is not expected to win. Now, perhaps some of us can imagine that more easily than others of us can. Your team's not expected to win, yet they're playing with energy and enthusiasm and skill, and they've actually taken a surprising halftime lead. As the team rushes off the field to the locker room at halftime, you find yourself cheering, yelling even, at the top of your lungs, along with thousands of others. You think, I'm going to pay for this the next day, but, but you don't care. Your team, a notable underdog, is playing great. They are positioned to pull off an upset. So you yell and you cheer. Then the second half begins. The reality takes over. Depending upon the game, errors are made, strikeouts happen, interceptions are thrown, easy shots are missed. The unimaginable becomes the inevitable as defeat is snatched from the jaws of victory. And you find yourself and those sitting around you producing voluminous noise again, but this time it's not so positive. Cheers turn into jeers, shouts of joy turn into booing. And you might even utter words or phrases you might otherwise not utter in polite company directed at a referee, maybe even your own team as things fall apart, a coach or a highly overpaid player 
You think my voice is going to pay for this the next day, but you don't care. That's the same game and the same crowd, but two entirely different reactions. How do we reconcile faith and culture? How do we reconcile palm and passion? How can we find ourselves in the crowd this morning, waving palms, throwing our coats on the ground, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and then find ourselves in another crowd, just a few days later, jeering and booing and shouting, crucify him. So one answer to our elders' question, how can we reconcile our faith and our living, is that we can't, or we don't, or we won't even make the effort. And in some ways, that would make sense. The gap is too big, the discomfort and unease is so great. So if we try it all, we just compromise. That's one approach. Now, some of you know that my parents made an annual habit of coming to Rochester and Third Church during Holy Week each year. I think it was mostly to hear the choir. (laughs) And even after my mom died, my dad came for several more years. My dad liked to say that in his later years, he became more conservative theologically, and therefore he became more progressive Politically, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it does to me. And for him, as an Ohioan, that meant he became, because of his faith, strongly opposed to the death penalty. Now, I believe that people of faith can disagree on a great deal politically, but the death penalty, to my dad and to me, seems pretty clear. So this week, this holy week, as we rehearse the scandal of one execution, a state is preparing to execute eight death row inmates. I am sure there will be crowds outside those prison gates and that people of faith will be both pleading for a halt and cheering for the result. And what that seems to say to me is that reconciliation cannot look like compromise. It cannot smooth over difference. It must live with tension and paradox. Now, we don't like paradox. We like clarity and simplicity. Whether it's each of us as individuals or all of us as a part of a community. And the truth is, as we examine and reflect on our own lives, we all live in kind of overlapping communities whose values may compete or conflict. I don't know about you, but I will find myself in a conversation or watching a television show or reading a Facebook post, and I find myself getting drawn in, getting caught up. But then I take a step back and I pause and I contemplate. How does that moment connect with all the other moments and situations in my life and in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we asked the what would Jesus do question, which 
seems on a surface level to try to simplify, but actually it complicates things, does it not? Because at one level it presumes that we are consistent and perfect, but at a deeper level it understands that we are eternally open to a crowd psychology, to a mob mentality. If you want to see a paradox, look at the two crowds this morning. Hosanna and crucify him. Now scholars suggest it's not likely that the same people would hang out in both of those crowds, but it's not impossible. And we all know how easy it is to get caught up. Or, if you want to see paradox, look at Judas. He was a member of Jesus' inner circle. He was a leader, a trusted leader. And yet he conspires to betray Jesus for blood money, to be sure, but also because he was convinced that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah he needed to be, or at least that Judas wanted him to be. Theologian Miroslav Wolf writes that Jesus is caught in the field of social forces with religious and ethnic and political bases, all interested in maintaining and bolstering their power. So here's the paradox. The power of violence and the power of truth. Truth and violence and power. Now, sometimes that power for us will be political, sometimes it will be economic, made manifest in our privilege. Sometimes we will recognize ourselves in that second crowd, even when we have happily participated in the first one. We don't like paradox. And we seek simple reconciliation between life at church and life in the world, but really we know better. the Philippian church, a beautiful passage from which Corny just read and the choir will sing in a few moments, Paul wrote about Jesus' humanity, how he emptied himself, how he humbled himself, even to the point of death. But because for that, Paul writes, God also highly exalted Jesus. Did you get the paradox? Also, there's power in it. Death on the cross, also knees bending at the name of Jesus. How do we reconcile? We who find ourselves in many crowds. Faith, like Holy Week, is a journey filled with tension and contradiction and paradox from without and from within. Faith, like Holy Week, is a journey. And the good news is that there is one who journeys with us and who even then stands apart from the crowd, leading us ever forward, showing us always, in life and in death, what reconciliation looks like. Amen.